am Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair and let's begin. Hi, Writing Table listeners, it's Chris. Like you, I'm gearing up for fall, but before we roll out new episodes, I'm sharing clips from authors and agents you might have missed. Let's get started. Philippa Gregory, author of The Other Boleyn Girl and The White Queen. It was so illuminating to look at the story of Henry VIII from the point of view of a wife and a mistress, as opposed to the usual way of looking at it, which is how does it, you know, what was it like for Henry? And that just seemed to me just a really rich way of approaching writing historical fiction. And now I'm going on to write a history of English women, a big nine century history, uh, which in a sense is the fulfillment of all of these stories as an author and a reader. Meredith Ireland talked to us about representation. Oh, I never saw myself reflected on page in anything I read. The canon that I grew up with is much different than it is now. I certainly never saw anybody who is a transracial adoptee. Like if I saw my, if I saw someone Asian, they weren't Asian the way I identify as being Asian. Um, so they, that's really important to me to tell stories with protagonists who are like me. Authors have been queer since there have been authors, but there wasn't a ton of queer lit out there either. So Emma and the love spell, she has a crush on her best friend who's a girl. And that whole story is actually, magic stands in as the allegory for queerness that her parents are okay with her magic, but they're just really scared how other people are going to react to the magic. And maybe it's just a phase and she shouldn't tell anybody and she should try to hide it, you know, just to take those lessons and kind of like solidify it into a really fun story. But that has a message of just loving yourself and forgiving yourself. Fantasy author Anthony Tchaikovsky on Creating Your Own World. So for me, the world is the thing. The world is why I do science fiction and fantasy, specifically that. And I've got to say, I have written things in historical periods. I have written things set modern day, even if they're fantasy that are set to the modern day. That's a lot harder because you've got to research other details that people can call you on. If you're writing a fantasy world, as long as it's all consistent, it's your world and you can kind of have it do whatever you want it to do that 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 fits the book you want to write. Um, so for me, it's a lot easier, honestly. And the more I have to bring the real world into it, the harder it gets. Jen Phillips on feminism and writing. I think I remember reading in high school an essay by Linda Ellerby and maybe Good Housekeeping, one of those magazines that all the moms had in the houses. And it was about the definition of feminism and said, basically, it means women are equal to men. And I read it probably four times and like the whole thing and really and was really stunned by like, wait, that's that's what it means because I've the tone I have been hearing definitely implied something worse than that. Um, but yeah, I don't think everyone grows up in a bubble, but when you do, it's really hard to even realize it's a bubble. And, and until, yeah, you leave and go to college or move away somewhere and like, but that's 18 years to be trapped in a certain set of thoughts and opinions and worldviews without realizing there might be more out there. Author of Daughter of Spies, Elizabeth Winthrop also 
tells us about her parents' secret jobs during the war. Mommy was what they call a decoding agent. Mm -hmm. She worked in MI5, and it means she read the reports that came in from all of the British agents up and down the coast, and she would have to evaluate whether they were reliable. Her cover was that she worked at the passport office. (laughs) Daddy went to work for OSS, which was the Office of Strategic Services, which predated the CIA. Many of the OSS people ended up in Washington. I knew them in the CIA. The night before he dropped into France after D-Day, she told him, She wasn't really working at the passport office, which was completely illegal because she had signed the Official Secrets Act. But she didn't know if she'd ever see him again. And he told her, well, of course, I'm dropping into France, but I can't tell you where. Now, that was the secrecy. I mean, all during their courtship, she had pretended she was working in the passport office. You get into a habit as a spy of keeping secrets. I think that's the most they ever talked about it. Later on in the marriage, there were a lot of secrets. Namrata Patel on creating characters. I also think about human nature. We identify with other characters, right? And Mm -hmm. they don't have to be exactly like us. They don't have to be relatable in the same way that we want them to be relatable. But the story only happens if the people driving the story are compelling. So I think Mm -hmm. focusing more on the character, it feels more natural to me to focus on the character than the story, as (laughs) you've heard. And I always thought, you know, as a beginner writer before even querying, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go for a ride with this character. And (laughs) what you learn along the way is that structure matters and Mm -hmm. the character has to start somewhere and end somewhere. So for me, once I know the start and the end, that's the character journey. And then the middle is the plot beats that you have to sort of hit right. (laughs) Why write about the Victorian era? Hannah Dolby, author of No Life for a Lady, will tell us. One thing that attracted me about the Victorian era is that you feel like you hear women's stories through that filter of what you were allowed to say at that time, or, um, you know, it was a man writing about you, so you didn't get a real view. And so I feel when you write about female detectives, um, it's certainly the Victorian times what women thought and how they felt, but also I think it's quite exciting to bring out those specific female skills that make a good detective Mm -hmm. as well. So I think, for example, women are really good at listening and really good at kind of taking in stimuli and kind of watching and learning. And and so it's quite exciting, I think, to bring out the strengths that make women good detectives. Piper Hughley, author of By Her Own Design. I see historical fiction as, I call it, putting butts in history classes. This is the thing that gets people interested in the history and in pursuing the history. Historical fiction has a very important job to do in terms of making people aware of the fact that these people existed. The historical fiction, particularly with Black women, is this whole aspect of what is not known. Cece Lira, literary agent with PS Literary, on writing with passion and avoiding impatience. I'd say this to my clients all the time. The world changes fast. It takes a long time to write a good book. If anyone's mm-hmm. saying, I can knock out a good draft in four months, <laughs> no, you can't. No one can. Not, not right. for their first book. You can knock out a draft in four months, but not a draft that's right. Right. So work on the thing you love. Work on that passion. And don't let your impatience get in the way. Because really, it's only a problem depending on the timing. And times change. Mm-hmm. And you can wait things out. It's okay. 
Steve Phillips, author of How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good, talks about balance. I really felt this responsibility to mm-hmm. convey to modern day audiences the intensity of what people went through. I was trying to honor that struggle in terms of channeling the full scale and scope of what they were up against. Because I think there is this tendency to want to believe it's not as bad as it was mm-hmm. and to try to minimize and excuse and not take the kind of necessary action. And so I really wanted to close that loophole or out and wanted us to have to face the full reality and brunt of it. And so there was no attempt to balance. I was trying to channel what people had gone through and to try to bring that into the world today. Sierra Horton McElroy about her novel, Atomic Family. A lot of these records from the Cold War are declassified now and they're public information if you search for them. And so I had this idea because You know, I'm obviously not a nuclear scientist, and it was very intimidating for me to enter into his mind as a fictional character and also portray the plant as accurately as possible. Mm -hmm. Because we, unlike the wife and son in the book, get to go where they cannot. We get to go to the nuclear plant and see what is really happening. And so I was like, what if I actually reference and use my grandfather's actual declassified reports? And that's exactly what I did. So I just searched his name through public records and found published articles, declassified memos. It is what pieced it together because I began to understand his work was figuring out how is nuclear waste buried and how does that affect groundwater? Is it going to leach into the river? These are really big questions when this is right up against the river that you know affects thousands of people and wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a lot of it began as I began to actually see this is what he was studying. He was doing environmental research at the time. And Ashley Winstead, author of The Last Housewife, shares her go-to tips when drafting a new novel. My process for both thrillers and romances and every book that I write is very much the same. Because all my work is very character-driven. So even when there's like, you know, a lot of plot, and I I feel very strongly about having like a lot of plot, plot lines happening, a lot of action, but at the center of it is always characters. And so I spend a lot of time deep diving using Story Genius by Lisa Cron as my like go-to beloved writing aid. I'm sure a lot of writers who are listening are familiar with Story Genius because it's so lauded. I love Lisa Cron's approach to getting to know your character inside and out and pulling what needs to happen in your plot from your character's fears and hopes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just so that everything makes sense for your reader. They're like, oh, of course she's getting plunged into a submarine with spiders now because that was her worst fear, you know, and now we're going to see right. her encounter it, you know, it's a silly example. So I do the same process with thrillers and romances where I'll get to know my main characters really intimately with a lot of pre-writing. And once I feel like I know everything I need to build a plot, then I'll start doing that. Dariah Wilson tells us how crossing paths with a certain celebrity inspired the seat filler. If you're writing something you know really well, it makes it a bit easier. And I would say like with the seat filler, I'm a pop culture junkie. I'm already reading about Oscar parties and celebrities and kind of what it's like and interviews they do. So that's already, you know, part of it. And the seat filler came out because I met Adam Driver at the SAG Awards three years ago and I couldn't speak. 
And so, and I made a fool of myself. And after he walked away, I was like, this is a book, right? Brett Crozier, author of Surf When You Can, about how the movie Top Gun compares to his experience flying an F-18. What about the G's? It's like a roller coaster. I think when you do it a lot, like when you're doing it every day and you're mm-hmm. training, I mean, you notice that you're naturally subconsciously squeezing your legs and you're making sure the blood goes to your head and you're wearing a G suit. When you haven't done it for a few years, because we do other things in the military than just fly. We wish we could just fly, but there's other mm-hmm. jobs and other things to do that take you away from the cockpit, as we say. And then when you get back into it, you do have to recondition yourself. Like the first flight, you go out and dogfight after, say, five years of not flying. You come back and you're tired again. And you're like, Ooh, that was that took a lot out of me. But you get right back on it. And it's good. I, the G's, yeah, the G's were, I don't think in the end, it, it's as bad as people think. Although you see the videos, right, where people are testing themselves to nine G's and they look horrendous. <laughs> Everybody has to do that once. And that is horrendous because you do it and you're really junior generally in the pipeline. So you don't know what you don't know. And then you you feel sick for like two days after that. but. Most part, we're flying around and enjoying the scenery and what's beneath you and looking around and talking to people. So, Mina Oktar on putting out that second book. I think it gets harder, uh, second books especially, because first book, I had zero preconceptions, right? It was like, let's just write this and see what happens. The second book, you've heard critiques from people. You've gotten feedback from everybody and then often very conflicting feedback. One person hates X another person loves it. And it's challenging then to put that out of your mind mm-hmm. and just write the story you want to write. Because in your head, you're starting to be like, oh, well, so-and-so didn't like this, but this person did. But how do I do this? Kelly J. Ford puts her absurd ideas to good use, writing thrillers. I have to say, when I was first starting out, you know, in writing classes and stuff, I was always like, oh, you got to be serious. You know, I took literature classes, like English lit. You know, like the way back machine. We're going 1800s, 1900s. It's like, oh God, I just love absurd things. And somehow the absurdity always bubbles up in my brain. And obviously a sinister Easter egg hunt is pretty absurd. But I also have had, you know, some of these characters in various novels before and just kind of percolating and kind of like, I see my characters as kind of these great actors. You know, it's like in my mind, you know, they're not Meryl Streep. As long as you have a great character, like you can put them in any world. Like they take on a life of their own, like a great actor. So yeah, I've had some of these characters kind of percolating in my brain for years. And I was like, oh, wait, no, this makes perfect sense. You know, one of the characters, they lost a family member in a previous novel, unpublished novel, you know, trunk novels in a way, I guess. But this is a serial killer novel. So obviously, let's mash that up. Author of Out on the Ice, Kelly Farmer shares what she learned between her first and third novels. It's funny, when you have your first book published, it's kind of a deer in the headlights situation. And it's just a really wild ride, particularly like it took me a long time to sell my first book. And I was just so like, it's happening. And everyone loves a debut. It's awesome. And so people are super excited about it. And, you know, so you get like that extra bump of people who Mm -hmm. are like, oh, yay, it's your first book. Oh, congratulations. So exciting. And then that excitement kind of wanes as, as it does, because then someone else's book comes out. Right. And, and that debut letdown is a very strange feeling. <laughs> I'd kind of like heard about it. I don't know. I feel like I heard about it more like, oh, it's that like writing the second book thing. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And 
that wasn't so much the thing for me as just that like first book letdown was it's kind of like, it's out in the world. Now what? And I felt like, and this is something I tell like soon to be published authors is like, you never will feel like you're doing enough. You know, you feel like you kind of need to be everywhere and like tell everyone about your book. And should I do this podcast? Should I do Facebook ads? Should I do like, should I pay for a full page ad in this? Like there's just so many things that Mm -hmm. you just, you just don't feel like you're doing enough. What goes into writing a novel with multiple timelines and points of view? Allison Winscott tells us about writing The Rewind. It was incredibly difficult to write. And in fact, I had not sold it when I was writing it. And I kept calling my agent being like, I can't do it. Please sell it now. I want to work with an editor. And she'd be like, just write 25 more pages. So I would. And I call her and say, I can't do it. And anyway, eventually I got to the end of the first draft. It was really very tricky to write because I was juggling actually three timelines. They're past, like mm-hmm. in the 80s, the night before when they mm-hmm. lost their memories and the next day. So it was a very delicate balance of weaving everything to not slow the pace or to not give too much away. You know, I was figuring this out as they were, and it was really hard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I cannot know. imagine. It was really difficult. The book that I'm finishing this week is my 10th book. And I still have those roller coaster emotions every single time. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations. We'll be back next week with fresh episodes featuring Sierra Godfrey, Carol Dunbar, Leah Redmond Chang, and many more. Please consider subscribing. And if you like what you hear, leave a review to help other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's always room at the writing table. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.